0: a hundred years ago we were in the third year of the great war the nation was incredibly weary hundreds of thousands had suffered intensely, families across the nation were uh, grieving the military was struggling and the continental enemies were fighting hard And nobody knew for certain when the Great War would end. And if we looked across Europe a hundred years ago, uh, this is the map you would have seen. You'd have seen a block of nations in the middle of of Europe. Germany, the German Empire led by the Kaiser, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Turkish Empire, also Bulgaria. The Turkish Empire... Uh, dominating Central Europe, banded together, fighting the Russians on one side, the French, the British, and some other allies, including the Americans, on the other side. And we were preoccupied by the Western Front, the trench warfare, which had been going on for three years. But if we'd lived exactly 100 years ago, in the month of November we'd have noticed three things happening in Europe as a result of the war. Three totally different things happening that we wouldn't have known, but subsequently would have had a very, very big impact on our lives and have had an impact on your life and mine. And they're marked by those three arrows. Can you see those three arrows on the map? The top arrow over there on the right points to the capital city of the Russian Empire, Petrograd as it was called then, St. Petersburg now. The Russians had been fighting and losing against the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians. The Tsar, Nicholas II had suffered tremendously. The Russians had suffered immense casualties on the Eastern Front. And the Tsar, the ruler of Russia, whose dynasty had ruled for hundreds of years had astonishingly a few months earlier abdicated and democratic governments tentatively had been put in place but in the month of November as a result of the war and the incredible pressures on the Russian nation and the incredible discontent in the Russian nation and unhappiness a very dedicated group of revolutionaries very small in number but very powerful in organisation, chose in the early days of November, just around exactly 100 years before the moment I'm speaking to you now, chose to instigate a daring coup in Petrograd. That group was known as the Bolsheviks. And their leader was a little-known revolutionary at the time, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Lenin, as we know him. And he gathered a few hundred of his followers, and in Petrograd, they stormed the public buildings. They had street demonstrations. They tried to rise the people up against the newly elected but very tentative democratic government. And from that point onwards, this group, now known to us as the communists, seized control of what had three years before been a very, very huge and powerful empire. Inch by inch, from Petrograd through the whole nation, they seized the whole country. There was a tremendous civil war and the nation became communist. And after Lenin came Stalin and the rest you probably know. Communism spread throughout the whole world and put its mark on every continent in in the whole world in one way or another. That happened. That spark happened exactly 100 years ago. There is Lenin speaking in Petrograd on those very days, raising the crowds against the government, and instigating one of the most daring coups of all history with devastating consequences for the world because communism has been a dead hand and a hand of atheism that spread across the world. Now my second arrow points to the south. Can you see there in the Middle East? It points to what was known then as Palestine. Now Palestine had been ruled by the Turkish Ottoman Empire for hundreds of years it was a quiet backwater no one really bothered with it some Jews had begun coming back there a few decades earlier but it was really fairly insignificant little country little little province in Turkey but the Ottoman Empire were fighting the Brits and the British had an army in Egypt because they had control in Egypt at the time. And so the orders came through from London to the British army in Egypt that we need to undermine the Turkish Empire. And the best way to do that is to invade Palestine and all the other provinces around, all the other Arab nations in that region. And it was exactly a 100 years ago uh, in December in fact, but around this time, November, December, December, that British General Allenby with his army from Egypt besieged the city of Jerusalem. And in December, this picture shows a, a situation in December, an astonishing thing happened that no one could have predicted. It wasn't on anybody's plan. And that is that the British took over Jerusalem from the retreating Turks as part of the First World War. And General Allenby, who had a very high respect for the historic faith, uh, the Muslims, the Jews and the Christians uh, in the city, made an astonishing decision when he came through the gates of the city of Jerusalem, which you see behind you in the picture. It was the tradition in those days for military leaders always to ride on their horses. You've probably seen those pictures from the First World War era. But General Allenby said, I'm I'm, I'm walking on foot. And he told all his staff officers behind him to walk on foot. And here they are, walking into the city of Jerusalem, out of respect for a special city of God that he felt in his soul. It was a very significant moment three years before, nobody could have predicted that the British would be in Palestine. And no one could have predicted that that in the same month, the British Foreign Secretary, with all these events happening, made a declaration known as the Balfour Declaration by which he said the British government would protect the existing Arab populations but would favour the establishment of a homeland for Jewish people in Palestine. Three years before, no one could have predicted these events. Nor could they have predicted that that declaration, three years later, would be cast in international law by the League of Nations, and would lead to the formation of the state of Israel a few decades later. Nobody could have predicted, and it all—the trigger was at the, exactly 100 years ago as we sit here today. And we go back to our map with the three arrows for a moment. And my third arrow is on the Western Front. Now this is more familiar in our mind, isn't it? Because this is what we think the First World War is about. And for the British Army, mostly that's what it was about. The incredible attrition of four years fighting the Germans on the Western Front is a well-known story. And I'm not going to repeat the story Today, it's filled with astonishing sacrifice and cost of uh, unprecedented in human history before then. Nothing ever equated to what happens in the trenches. But in exactly 100 years ago, in November 1917, the British made an initiative on the Western Front at a place called Cambrai. And the next Uh, photograph tells you the unique feature of this particular battle. They deployed in large numbers for the first time ever in military history what we now call the tank. Here is one of the earliest British tanks. Several hundred of these tanks were smuggled up to the front by night and placed in wooded areas, in woods, in order to avoid the attention of the German spotter aeroplanes that flew above. You know those biplanes that flew around in the First World War? They were mostly reconnaissance. And they took the Germans by surprise when hundreds of tanks joined an offensive at Cambrai. And in the first day, to everyone's astonishment, the British Army advanced five miles into German territory, took 8,000 prisoners, And people realized that we're entering into a new era of warfare. The tank could cut through the barbed wire and as you see from this picture could get over the trenches which was a very vital thing. Now it wasn't quite that simple and by the way they tended to break down and if you were a a gunner in the tank um, in those days it was a very dangerous place and astonishingly polluted because carbon monoxide just filtered through the cabin. Uh, These were very clumsy mechanical beings, but they did have a success. Now, what's the significance of that story? The significance is that war always produces technical advances that change the game and move mankind on in the science of warfare. Warfare. And there were a number of breakthrough things that happened. And around the end of the war, around this particular time, there were tanks, but there was also the development of aircraft, which have been two major developments in the last hundred years that have shaped warfare all over the world. And the genesis of them, for the most part, was right in these moments in the First World War. Now, why am I telling you these things? Well, this is what happened a hundred years ago if you were living in our country a hundred years ago, all these events would have been on the front page of your newspaper. And all of them in very different ways have shaped the world in which we and our parents and our grandparents have lived. And they're shaping the world today. Now, if you'd lived 99 years ago, exactly, and I mean virtually exactly the 11th of November you would have seen this headline in the newspaper the armistice at the end of the first world war so that on 11am on the 11th day of the 11th month hostilities ceased and literally at that moment and it would have been happening if we were a hundred years ago, the day after, what would have been happening is that hundreds of thousands of troops all over Europe would be surrendering, handing in their weapons, coming to a standstill, and the whole world was changing. So you see, wars produce often surprising major changes in human life. And the conclusion of the war will almost always lead to a mass disarmament and a mass change of the power structure of the world. And that's what exactly happened at the end of the First World War. Germany lost all its colonies, 10% of its territory, much of its industrial heartland, much of its army. It had to pay lots of reparations. The cost was punitive. The Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed. The Ottoman-Turkish Empire was dismembered. Three empires collapsed 99 years ago. They just collapsed. That's the power of war. And a similar thing happened at the end of the Second World War. Where suddenly this great German Third Reich, so powerful, collapsed. And I've got a personal glimpse into the end of the Second World War through my family history. My father came back from fighting in Japan, fighting the Japanese in India and Burma just before the end of the the European War, just just at around the time of the end of the European War. And just as he was about to be demobilised, he received a phone call from his headquarters. And they said the German army has surrendered all over Europe, but the British army have been assigned to receive the surrender and the demobilisation in Norway. And we are looking for administrative staff officers to go immediately to northern Norway, to the Arctic Circle, to receive the surrender and to take control of the situation of the German soldiers that are in northern Norway. And will you go? He said, yes. And he flew across the North Sea on one of these aeroplanes that lands in the sea, you know those seaplanes, and they landed by a town called Tromso. And he was a very skilled administrator, he wasn't a high officer, he was a captain and he realised what had happened. at that same day when he was told that in northern Norway there were 130,000 German troops who had surrendered. And it was his responsibility with his administrative group to get them back to Germany. Now that's twice the population of our town. And he was also told that there are 40,000 Russian prisoners of war that we have to get back to Russia. And he was also told that he had the personal responsibility for 12,000 German military vehicles that had to be, something had to be done with them, and any amount of armaments. And he was also told that the German army was very short of food but they had a lot of horses so he was involved with others in making the decision to slaughter the horses and the German army ate horse meat for a week or two or even longer. I visited the town with my family and my father told me the story in the 1960s. The end of the war the end of a war produces dramatic changes. Major changes, doesn't it? The recent war in Iraq that the British and the Americans fought produced massive changes and those changes still live with us today. There were consequences that go on and on from any war that mankind ever or any nation ever undertakes. They're often unpredictable and they're often enormous. Now this provokes me to think that there's a neglected strand of our understanding of the New Testament that is really worth reinstating in our thinking, and it relates very much to what I said. Just as in human conflict, human life, key conflicts define the contours of human existence. Wars and battles, they define how people live and their destinies. All sorts of destinies have changed because of warfare. So it's interesting that when Jesus came, the New Testament writers are unashamed in frequently describing the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the atonement of Jesus and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus in quasi-military terminology. Because as Jesus comes to the earth, And as he begins his ministry, it triggers a particular form of warfare. I would describe it as a spiritual warfare between literal evil powers and the Son of God himself for the destiny of mankind. Now, you can try and make all this language metaphorical if you like, but the New Testament writers don't let us get away with that. The appearance of demonic activity... And challenge is a very, very major theme of the Gospels. And Jesus, when he came to the synagogue in in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry, made this statement, quoting from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. There are many dimensions to this, at least five, actually. But the one that I want to just highlight for a moment is when he said to set the oppressed free, there is a spiritual dimension to that. The setting of the oppressed free. And who is the oppressor? Is it metaphorical? Is it poetic? The New Testament goes on to clarify for us that the principal oppressor of the human race is Satan himself and all the evil powers. And that's why when Jesus cast out demons, he said, you know, if I cast out the demon by the Spirit of God, and you know that the kingdom of God has come into this world, and you can't bind, you can't take a strong man's goods until you bind him up so that you can take from him, speaking of, of, of satanic powers. And so, although sometimes we can edit these things out of the New Testament, there is a There's a metaphorical and literal language of warfare that goes on all the way throughout the New Testament. And so when Jesus came to die, he said, now is the time for the prince of this world to be cast out. John 12. There's a literal battle going on. And we see it all the way through the New Testament. And uh, uh, Paul summarises this in my text for the day, which I'd like to just put up for a moment. Very short text. Colossians 2, verse 13. We tend to focus on the first half of these verses, which are very important, but I'm going to focus on the last verse for my purposes. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He'd taken it away nailing it to the cross. Is that a wonderful thing? And, And here in verse 15 he amplifies what this means. Now, this is really provocative language. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, what does this mean? What are these powers and authorities? Well, they are lit- in the Greek, they literally refer to spiritual powers as opposed to just humans. That's by far the most obvious reading of that text. He has actually disarmed the power of darkness over the human race by triumphing over them in the cross. Isn't that amazing? Now this is very powerful military terminology. This is a battle. This is a battle of astonishing proportions for the for the destiny of the human race. And so what has he actually done? What he's done is he's overcome the power of sin, the sinful nature, human sin, to control our destiny by giving us A way by which there's a greater power that can be at work within our lives, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. So those who come to Christ are no longer dominated by that power. Do you believe that? That's the reality, isn't it? And you're also going to win the battle over death, which of course is the great unanswered question of our world wars. Death stares us in the face whenever we look at war. It remains an unanswered, enigmatic, problematic question for the human race always when facing war until we come to Christ. Until we see that even death is going to be conquered in this amazing battle that he's fought for us and will bring to conclusion when he returns again and death is overturned once and for all. What an incredible metaphor. What an incredible metaphor. And Paul goes on to illustrate this by a very interesting statement when he says in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. What does that mean? Well, he's using a very interesting metaphor. When the Romans had a military victory They did this in grand style, by the way, the Romans. They had a parade, and it was usually in Rome, but it might be in a provincial city when they won a victory. And the Roman parade had the Roman military leaders riding there, Roman soldiers, and captives from the defeated nation in chains, in humiliation, paraded through the streets of Rome with artifacts from their temples, Uh, or, or their political institutions carried along. And then some of those, particularly the leaders, would be executed at the end of the procession. And the hundreds of thousands of people would gather and jeer the defeated people. This happened many times in Rome, near the Colosseum, that sort of area. And Paul's taking this analogy and he's saying, actually, hang on a minute. Now think of this. He turns it on his head. He said, now since Christ has come, he has a triumphal procession. In this world, wherever people believe and are saved and gather and the Holy Spirit is among them, it is an evidence of the triumph of Christ on the cross and the failure of all the powers of darkness to stop people from being saved and redeemed in eternity. Amen? That's basically what Paul is saying. But in this case, the captives, he uses the word captives, in Christ's procession are willing captives. Paul says, I'm a captive of Christ. I don't mind being in his triumphal procession because I'm not going to be executed at the end of it. I'm going to glory, because here's the king. You know, I'm, I'm caught up in his army now. So he turns the metaphor on its head. Any person reading that from a Roman background would know what the Romans did. They saw these pictures. It was put in engravings, and, uh, in, in sculpture. You can see some of it in Rome. And Paul is saying the church now, if it understands its destiny and its truth, is a living testimony of the triumph of Christ that was achieved at the cross. Even 2,000 years later, the fact that you sit here, if you have faith, is a testimony that 2,000 years ago there was a spiritual transaction, a disarming of darkness. Now, my father in Norway, he disarmed the Germans literally. He took from them their weapons. He gave an order. It might be a general, a brigadier, doesn't matter who it was. And the Germans kept their military formation very exactly even after they surrendered and he was said, right, hand over all your, your, your guns. In they came. There was only a few Brits there and my dad was in control of the storehouse, the warehouses, huge warehouses with hundreds of thousands of weapons. He gave the order. It was done. They were disarmed. That's human life. But what I want to say to you is that Paul proclaims to us that the status of a believer is an even more powerful, an even more powerful position of, of, being, of not being under the power of a, of a foreign enemy. It's been, he's been disarmed. Now his ultimate public. Destruction awaits the return of Christ. That's true. And there's a sense that there is a battle on but the perspective of the New Testament is when you're in the battle you're on the winning side. And when the Christian enters into a battle and doesn't believe that he or she is on the winning side before they start, they start on the wrong foot. And what I want to communicate to you Whatever the circumstances of your life, you might be going through some really, really hard times. And I validate that. They happen. The position the Holy Spirit wants you to have is one of complete confidence that your Saviour disarmed all the powers of darkness and released such power to you through the Holy Spirit's presence and through the nurture and encouragement of the body of Christ as a secondary reality around that, That you can stand. And your life can be characterized by a certain, quiet, humble, victorious heart. Whatever pressures you live under. So by understanding the military analogy and comparing it to human warfare and some of the things we learn from human warfare, we can... discern more clearly what the New Testament writers were saying, which is that Christianity is not just a moral improvement exercise, a, a feel-better exercise, a dealing with your shame exercise, dealing with your guilt exercise, giving you a comfortable life exercise, giving you a long-term investment plan in heaven exercise. It, nothing like that. You be, if you, As you believe, you've become part of that transaction that took place, as Paul said, when those powers were disarmed. And Paul knew what he was talking about for this reason. That on the day that Jesus apprehended him on the road to Damascus, you remember the story, I'm sure. He was going along to persecute the church and then suddenly saw a staggering light. He was temporarily blinded he heard a voice and the voice said, I'm Jesus. And then he went on to say to him, I'll rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. Notice the mission. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So here it is again, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Now sometimes our life experience doesn't feel like that. And our life choices reflect an ambiguity. We're not really sure which way we're going. So I want to encourage you this morning. We're going to end in a moment by just coming back into worship. I want to encourage you to make an inner act of alignment. Align yourself to the biblical truth in your heart. Those powers have been disarmed. There's still a roaring lion, but it can't overcome you. Have a Holy Spirit living in you whose power is far greater than you realize most of the time. Call on Him. And if you've made a wrong move in life, you just feel that wrong move is just making you uncomfortable as I'm speaking. That's well, the Holy Spirit speaking to you, and I just say, Come clean with it with God. Let go of it, it's not going to do you any good. Come under His authority get back on the front line of Christ's triumphal procession which is the church which is a whole hearted life which is filled with the Holy Spirit and that's when our lives really begin to function effectively let's stand together I'd like the musicians to come